0: Being black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast.
1: what's going on what's going on happy black history month
0: i know it's black history month i'm excited for us to be back on this uh lineup of interviews we have focusing a lot on issues that that black people are facing right now and how we how we can address them so i'm excited to be back into the the rhythm of things and celebrating black history month
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. let's kick it off, kick it off. And I think, oh, this is our our uh, one year, too, this week. Mm-hmm. One year on VHD, so shout out for that. Hand clap for that, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny, because one of our first episodes last year was discussing Black Panther and how they did, or they're doing a re-release for Black History Month and people mm-hmm. can go for free. So it's kind of like full circle.
1: Full circle, yeah. They re- release it again and being excited about because all the Oscar nods they're getting mm-hmm. and should win uh, a bunch for sure. Because, uh, you know, I don't think there was more influential film than that in this past year this past year. Yeah. Shout out to Black Panther and shout out to us for making the whole year and shout out to all our listeners for sticking with us for a whole entire year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: we B- fast.
0: Forever. BHD
1: forever. <laughs> BHD for life. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get into the old swinger things. You got some old lord news ready to go?
0: Of course.
1: All right. Let's go. Hello and welcome to BHD News where we give you the most current and eye-opening old lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say.
0: Okay. So people often talk about how democratic politicians are just as racist as Republican politicians. And Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia may have lended some credibility to that claim because pictures from his medical school yearbook recently emerged and showed him and another man dressed in blackface and a Ku Klux Klan outfit. Although the governor apologized for participating, he did not make clear which person he was in the picture. So we don't know whether he's in blackface or whether he's a
2: Klansman. Uh, But the
0: crazy thing is, instead of resigning, he vowed to complete his term as governor.
1: That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, that. I mean, one how you not know which one are you right to choose between the two? He knows which one he is. He, he
0: does, he know. but they're both really bad. Like wh- which one do you confess
1: to? Like is yeah, it's bad. It's real he, bad. I, he might, you know, yes, yeah, both are really bad. But if you in the, if you in the hood, man, that's the, that's the worst of the two to me. You think so? Uh, I think so. I think if you in that hood, cause it's like, Hey, hey you know, that represents fully. You know? Yeah, that's true. Uh. And so if he was in that hood, then yeah, he, both, both are terrible. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I think if he's not saying that, he might be the one in the hood.
0: Yeah, it probably, probably. And it's crazy because the Florida Secretary of State actually just resigned last week over his own blackface photos. Like mm-hmm. for a Halloween party dressed in blackface. Like, why? Why do people do this?
1: I don't know, <laughs> man. But, you know, I'm not going to be surprised with these like old white men in the time they grew up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just you know that was that was common practice I'm sure hanging out with their friends and being extremely racist mm-hmm. and especially it was more uh overt overt racism back then so uh it's funny how people were pulling up these old old receipts boy oh
0: lord I'm like I hope they know well not no racist <laughs> receipts but I'm just like lord what receipts out there about me <laughs> let me you know yeah I don't out.
1: think we gotta worry about anything <laughs> racist out there so I think <laughs> Think we should be good. (laughs) Uh,
0: Well, the governor may have just gained some some fans from the extreme right. I'll just say
1: that. Probably. Yeah, I I won't be surprised.
0: (laughs) Uh, Speaking of politicians, though, I'm sure you've heard that Cory Booker has announced his candidacy uh, for president.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, it was rumblings if he was going to do it or not, and uh, he's doing it. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Do you feel like he got the same reaction as Kamala Harris?
1: Um, No, I think Kamala, I, I saw a little bit more excitement around Kamala's uh, announcement and I, I didn't see as much around him.
0: Yeah. I feel like, so people have been like, Oh, you know, people aren't attacking him as much, but I'm starting to realize that like the people who get the most attention is because people feel excitement or feel some type of weight on both sides. When you don't have any reaction, it's probably because people are just like, mm, you don't really matter.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, and so that means that I think for his camp, that's something for them to see. They're gonna have to like build up and try to build some momentum. Um, cause yeah, there wasn't a lot of discussion. I saw this funny, uh, like, you know, meme on Instagram. Somebody had posted it. It was like a little black girl, a little black boy, like breakdance battling each other. And they were like, this is going to be Kamala and Corey (laughs) 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 trying to win the black vote. (laughs) It was funny, man. But, uh, but yeah, so we're going to see how this works. But yeah, I think Kamala is right now still a still ahead of the charge uh, when it comes to these candidates.
0: He has said some Ola Lord newsworthy stuff, though. I got to tell you, I I don't know when this speech was given, but he has given at least one speech where he said, I always say I got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark. Like,
1: <laughs> that's all so like Come on, come on, <laughs> Senator Bucker. <laughs> don't don't do that. Don't like
0: I mean you and he might be down, like, but like don't do don't try to say things that seem like you're pandering. Like people yeah. pick up on that and they will call you out on it. Don't do that.
1: Yeah, do not do that, man. Um Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, you know, we all know Corey Booker. I don't even know where I know is he from Newark? I don't know if he's from Newark. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, Maybe I don't
1: know where. um but but that's just a funny thing that he said PhD from the streets of Newark. All right, all right, Mr. Booker. Alright. <laughs> you say so.
0: Oh, actually, oh,
1: don't let them pull out the receipts on you now. You saying stuff like that? Yeah.
0: So they did actually go up in New Jersey, and I just have to tell this story really quickly that I read. <laughs> so his parents, there is a New Jersey suburb called Harrington Park. Have you ever heard of it?
1: Um, I've heard of it, but never been there. I've seen. I remember seeing the name somewhere before.
0: Okay. So he has previously told a story about how like his parents, I think in the late sixties or early seventies wanted to buy a house in the suburbs. And after trying a couple of times and, you know, realizing that like no one would sell to them as African-Americans, they had one of their white friends to pose as them to go look at houses. And when they decided on a particular house The the white uh, decoy kind of went through the entire process up until it was time for them to go in and close on the house. And when his parents actually walked in, the realtor got so pissed that he uh, like kind of had his dog to attack them and like actually hit the dad or something like that. It's crazy. It worked out. They ended up getting a house, but that's just that's cray cray.
1: Yeah, no. Yeah, that's wild. That's wild. I think yeah. I've heard him tell that story before too. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I thought that was interesting. So you know, hey, like like I said about the Kamala thing, like we're not going to try to take anybody's black cards, you know, based on their education or based on whatever. But also, Corey, don't talk about getting your PhD from the streets
1: because you're not from the streets. Okay. Yeah, not from the streets. And, um, you know, I think a lot of conversations have been sitting around him, dealings with like big pharma and stuff like that. And I've been seeing critiques about that, but I'm sure we'll we'll spend some time uh, maybe towards the end of the month going another deep dive into some of these candidates.
0: Definitely. Okay, so for this second story, it's, it's actually a follow-up from a story that we had a few weeks ago where we talked about how AirPods, which are used with iPhones, would, how they could allow users to eavesdrop on conversations. Well, the iPhone has become an even better eavesdropping device given that a new bug allows anyone to listen in on your iPhone through a simple FaceTime trick.
1: Mm, Yep, (laughs) I heard about this and I was wilding.
0: (laughs) Yes. Okay, so the trick is, you know, someone can start a FaceTime video call with an iPhone contact and while the phone is ringing, they can just swipe up and add themselves to the, the call that they mm-hmm. were originally placing. And once that happens, it allows them to listen in on whatever is going on with the person that they originally tried to call. Mm-hmm. And multiple people have tried this. And I uh, Apple has not released a fix yet. It's supposed to come sometime this week. Um, so until then, I suggest you go into your settings and turn off the, the FaceTime app, like cut off any data, you know, to where no one can actually try to reach out to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's wild. Like the fact that it, it automatically picks up your phone without you doing it. Um, and they can listen in to everything. It doesn't show any video, but it's just the audio as if you were on the phone. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I saw that craze going on social media when this was happening and people were like turn off your FaceTime, turn off your FaceTime. And I'm like, man, it's about to mess up a lot of relationships, boy.
0: Right, <laughs> right. Like in the background, like, hey, 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 baby, be quiet. And then
1: <laughs> Your girlfriend listening there, she pick up,
0: like, What oh you telling to be quiet?
1: Uh, uh-huh, it's about to be wild, man. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, Apple out here getting people in trouble, man. But right. So, so be on your p's and q's. Yeah, turn off that Facetime because yeah, any anybody has it, uh, iPhone, to iPhone, that that can they can do it and. uh You don't want nobody eavesdropping on you. Then you get their stuff together. A part of me, though, when I thought about this, too, I was like, hmm, you know, maybe this isn't really a bug. Maybe we just somebody just found out. You know, mm-hmm. cause I really don't be trusting, you know, everything dealing with the government and stuff like that. And you know how they be trying to like mm-hmm. figure out ways and teeter the line as far as invasion of privacy and using phones. And I'm like, maybe this was always in there where they can like tap into certain people's phones yeah, and, listen in and get data. And now we're just like we came now we out know about it. Yeah. yeah, Now we know about it. And it's like, Oh, it's a bug. We got to fix it. But maybe it wasn't, man. <laughs> you know, cause who would ever think to do that? You know, when you're FaceTiming somebody and add yourself to a call and it automatically picks up their phone, um, that's so true. I'd try be trying to be a little slick, who knows.
0: Yeah, I actually was wondering like do people just sit around testing things out to see if it were like how do you even find that out? Uh yeah, that was Yeah, cool. I don't
1: know. It probably had to happen by accident and then it just probably took off from there.
0: Oh, smart. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. OK, so this this final story is surprising, it's heartwarming, and it kind of speaks to the power of nature. So this is more of a yes, Lord uh, story. And it, you know, kind of segues into our discussion about health a bit. So a 13 month old child saved her mother from life threatening breast cancer. Now, I want you to ask me how.
1: Yeah. How did this happen? 13 months. Yeah. Can we can't even talk? Probably just learn how to walk.
0: Yes. OK, so well. Uh, After 13 months of breastfeeding her infant without any issues or complications, the child suddenly started refusing to drink from her mother's right breast. The child's aversive reaction to the mother's attempt to feed from the right side set off alarms and prompted her to perform a breast self-exam where she actually found a lump that turned out to be a 10-centimeter Tumor. That's crazy. Yes, doctors also discovered that the cancer had spread to 31 of her 33 lymph nodes. Mm. <laughs> yes, and after a mastectomy, aggressive chemotherapy, and radiotherapy, we can now say that she is cancer-free.
1: Hey, that's what's up. That's what's up. Wow, that's crazy, man.
0: Yeah.
1: So that baby is like. Nah, this don't taste right. Yeah, so <laughs> like, like the awful. baby
0: was just like something is not right, and it it turns out that the tumor was right, um, right behind the nipple. So I don't know if the baby was tasting something weird, if the milk wasn't. I don't know what it was, but the baby was like nah. Some
1: ain't right. right. <laughs> You're like, yo, listen, I've been on this. I've been drinking this milk for 13 months. I know how it's supposed to taste. <laughs> I know
0: how it's supposed to taste.
1: But and this joint tastes funny.
0: Yes. And, you know, just think, like, she may not have ever found that if, because her, her other children were, like, 10 and, like, 11. So, like, you know, this was a brand new baby. So if she hadn't, you know, had the baby, maybe she wouldn't have found it as soon as she did. But it's kind of like. That
1: that mama owes her child. Yeah, yeah, that's what's up. Hey, the the baby—that's a story they always have together. Like, yo, you say mama's life.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, thirteen months. Yeah, that's crazy. well no, yeah. that's a good that's a good story. Yeah. Um, but that definitely leads us to you know today's topic and really this month's topic. Um, because we know it's the new year, it's twenty nineteen. It's also Black History Month, and we know a lot of y'all are having certain kind of goals, especially health-related goals. And so this month we're gonna cover and have our interviews cover that topic of, of black health in various different ways. And so the first episode, this this week's episode, the interview will be talking to Dr. Rashawn Ray, um, who does a lot of work looking at pretty much health-related things. He's a sociologist. There's a lot of work looking at health-related things within the black community mm-hmm. from a sociological perspective, which is really, really cool. And I know it's February. It's a good time to put it out because, you know, people probably started, stopped going to the gym already. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> New Year, so we're here to re-motivate you and tell you why you need to start going to it and bringing some some experts and scholars and stuff like that, and professionals to come, tell you why you need to keep working out. And hopefully if you keep up February, then you'll keep up for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm,
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. This is the the second... This is the second wave pushing you forward when you're starting to be in that little health slump that you that you started at the beginning of the year. So yeah.
1: Mhm. Mhm. Excitement done wore off and and you are tired already, but no we want to tell you keep going. Keep going. <laughs> 2019 yeah. we still got 11 more months left, so so yeah. let's keep keep it pushing.
0: So yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. I feel like it's a it's a broader conversation that kind of leads into like more specific conversations about health later in the month. Uh, and we talk about the social determinants of health behaviors and health outcomes. So it's a good conversation.
1: Yeah, I learned a lot. Learned a lot from from the work that he does. Um, he's been doing it for a while, and I know you all will too. Um, so ready to get into it, Daph? We'll catch up with y'all afterwards. I am. All right, see you in a bit. In recent decades, there's been growing interest in identifying and addressing the health disparities experienced by African-Americans. However, in order to solve the issue, we must first understand the various factors that shape particular health outcomes. Today, we seek to provide insight into social determinants of health in the black community by interviewing Dr. Rashawn Ray, an Associate Professor of Sociology and the Executive Director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland College Park. He is also one of the co-editors of Context Magazine, Sociology for the Public. He's also been featured and written for New York Times, Huffington Post, NBC News, Public Radio International, He has appeared on HLN, Al Jazeera, NPR, Fox, MSNBC. During this conversation, we discuss how place, socioeconomic status, gender, and culture shape health behaviors and outcomes in the black community. Today, we welcome Dr. Ray.
2: Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all and um, join in on the conversation.
1: I appreciate you being here.
2: Yeah. We're we're,
1: excited to have this conversation.
0: We are, especially from uh, like a a research standpoint. We've talked about wanting to have a conversation about health, but we hadn't thought about, okay, maybe we should give some background information on like why we have some of the outcomes we do in the black community. So excited. Mm -hmm. Um, so before we get into that, uh, we typically like to start our interviews by having our guests to just introduce themselves to our audience. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what led you to study um, your particular uh, area of research.
2: Yeah, sure. So so again, I'm, I'm Rayshon Ray. I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland at College Park. I'm also the executive director of the lab for applied social science research. Um, at UMD, and what we aim to do is to connect social science research to policymakers, and particularly by bringing in uh, innovations such as uh, virtual reality into different ways in which we might be able to train and educate people and collect data to, to actually improve the relationships that people have. Um, I'm also one of the co-editors of Context Magazine, which is uh, sociology for the public, is sociology's public, uh, public face, if you will. And as far as this particular topic, um, It's something that I've been working on for about for about like a decade now, which uh, starts to make me feel slightly old a little bit. But, um, <laughs> but essentially how it came about when I was in graduate school in Indiana, I was examining uh, what it means to be middle class, particularly the racial gap between blacks and whites. So what does it mean to be middle class to blacks? What does it mean to be middle class to whites? I was examining a large, uh, large set of data, from the general social surveys from the 1970s up to the present. And one of the main findings that came out of that is that socioeconomic status in regards to education, occupational prestige and income simply do not matter to African-Americans in the same way that they matter to whites in terms of them identifying as being middle or upper class. And part of what this got me to recognize is that the traditional way that scholars have talked about social class primarily being about socioeconomic status, is not the way that people experience social class in everyday life. Instead, people's education, occupation, and income put them in situations and social interactions and environments that should lead to um, better interactions because people perceive them as having higher status. Unfortunately, race oftentimes mutes those particular experiences and leads to African-Americans having worse social interactions than whites in public spaces, driving down the, you know, driving down the interstate or a highway, uh, walking to walking to their local coffee shop, even being in their same neighborhood or even being at work. So some of these same benefits that supposedly help uh, supposedly help middle class people was not helping, uh, were not helping African Americans. And this kind of got me to looking at their health profiles. And what I started noticing was that African Americans, particularly middle class African Americans, at times had worse mental health outcomes and physical health outcomes than uh, middle class whites and at times working class whites. And this goes completely against everything we might think we know about social class. And this is kind of what got me into it. Um, I then did a postdoc at the University of California at Berkeley with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And part of that was uh, was exploring physical activity and obesity, and that's really when really when I started kind of wrapping up uh, my research on health.
1: Mm-hmm. Nice. So before we even get into some of that research, um, you know, a lot of our listeners. Uh- are in academic spaces, but many of them are not as well. And so a lot of the work when you talk about racial and social inequality, um, you know, you mention things in terms like intersectionality and things of like that along those lines. Um, so can we just say before moving forward, can you just take a moment to explain to our listeners, what do you mean when you say intersectionality and intersectional?
2: Yeah, So, so intersectionality in short is thinking about the different identities that people have. So the different um, aspects of, um, of a person's identity, their race, their gender, their social class background, their sexual orientation. I mean, we could go farther, their age, their weight. And intersectionality asserts that these different factors, these different identities that make up who we are, are not separate and isolating. They're not um, additive. So in other words, you don't all of a sudden take race and gender, say for me, and all of a sudden, you just instantly get a black man. Instead, what happens is that um, race and gender become um, interactive. They become multiplicative to actually lead to different experiences. So in other words, we could take two factors, race and gender. We could put them together for each of us. And all of a sudden, all three of us on this podcast can have different experiences based on not only race and gender, but also other factors that make us up. So intersectionality privileges the fact that we are uh, pluralistic individuals, that we aren't necessarily just, um, just kind of one type of person. Instead, we have different types, of, types of experiences that actually end, end up impacting us. So traditionally, intersectionality is primarily focused on African American women with the argument that, um, that typically when people think about gender, white women are, uh, are viewed as kind of the, the normative group there. When people think about race or blackness, Black men are oftentimes viewed as the normative group and African-American women are frequently left outside looking in in terms of what's going on. And I found that exact thing in my research on physical activity and obesity. Mm. Nice,
0: thanks. Mm. Well, well. speaking of that, uh, one of your many compelling studies, uh, Black People Don't Exercise in My Neighborhood, examines racial differences when it comes to physical activity and exercise, um, how do uh, race and class and intersectional you know, identities uh, influence physical activity?
2: Yeah, so, so what happens, and this is you know, one of the things I love about this study is that it really layers things up and really brings intersectionality as a theoretical framework to bear. So if we only take race, now let me, let me start with class. If we just take class, one of the things we assume is that the higher one social class background, the healthier they're going to be. Pretty much every single study finds that. It makes sense. People who have a higher social class, they have more money. When you have more money, you have more, oftentimes, more luxuries or more money to spend on healthier food options. You frequently live in safer neighborhoods. You frequently live in neighborhoods that have more resources to engage in physical activity, so you tend to be healthier. Okay, for African for for race, what happens with race is that because we know that African Americans are um, less likely to live in these more affluent neighborhoods, these more well resourced neighborhoods, we also then see a racial gap in say physical activity and obesity, with African Americans having lower levels of physical activity relative to whites, and also having higher levels of obesity relative to whites. Okay, so we have social class, and we have race. But when we put them together, one thing we might assume is, okay, for middle class African Americans, for African Americans who are, you know, professors like us on this podcast, or, you know, um, individuals who who are physicians, or judges, or teachers, or nurses, um, that that should afford them some level of resources to engage in physical activity because since they have more money, they also might live in better neighborhoods. They might also live in more research, neighbor- resource neighborhoods, safer neighborhoods. But what my research actually found was that middle-class African-Americans actually had lower levels of physical activity than their middle-class white counterparts. So social class isn't explaining what's going on. And this is an example of how we see intersectionality come to bear. But then we have to take it a step farther. Because if we only stop there, it suggests that African-Americans are experiencing a dearth of physical activity for, for reasons that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. But then once we bring in gender, what we see is that the lack of physical activity, in other words, lower levels of physical activity among middle class people, is acutely present among African-American women. In fact, my study found that middle class black men actually had higher levels of physical activity than whites, including white men. So it was something specific going on with African-American women that led to a lower level of physical activity. And considering that African-American women outnumber African-American men at sometimes rates of up to three to one in terms of college, uh, college degree completion. We can see all of a sudden the way that uh, race, class and gender collide and become intersectional, if you will, to highlight different experiences for different groups of people. So, so
1: why? Um, I know you had an essay on that as well, kind of look, t- discussing the um, the lack of physical activity among middle class Black women. So, so what are some of the things you, your findings regard to this uh, this particular topic? Right? Uh, why 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 is that the
2: case? Yeah. So it's a few main factors. So one of the first factors has to do with racial composition. Racial composition is very key. So the so the article that was highlighted. About you know, black people don't exercise in my neighborhood. Is all about that. So one of the things that I found, and what I did was I asked people um, what was the perception of their uh, of the racial composition of their neighborhoods, and based on that perception, that perception then impacted how much they engaged in physical activity. But it varied for different groups. So for African American um, or for whites, let me start off with whites. For whites, what we've seen is that the higher the percentage of whites in the neighborhood, the more likely whites were to engage in physical activity. And I should just add that that in my study of nearly 500 uh, middle class people, these were people who had at least a bachelor's degree. Most of them had master's degrees and advanced degrees. There were no white respondents who lived in a neighborhood that had uh, a a majority of African-Americans in it. Like Middle class whites just don't really live in these spaces. For African Americans, on the other hand, they were living in very different types of neighborhoods—predominantly black, predominantly, in, uh, or predominantly black, predominantly white, and racially integrated. What I found was that for African American men in neighborhoods that were predominantly black, their physical activity was through the roof—very high levels of physical activity. On the other hand, in predominantly white neighborhoods, black men's physical activity was very low. And what I attribute that to is that African-American men, in particular, experience a certain level of policing and profiling that other groups don't. And what this leads to, when individuals are profiled and policed and essentially criminalized just just for being in their own skin, in their own bodies, it leads to people disengaging from certain types of activities, such as civic engagement, community engagement, including physical activity. And then these black men would go through a signaling process where they would signal, aim to signal their middle-class status to their to their neighbors, to their mostly white neighbors. So they would always wear an alumni t-shirt. They would wave at people when they run down the street. They would always carry ID. They would run uh, during <clears throat> during um, daylight hours They or they would run near lights. You know, they would do all of these things that people don't really do when you go for a run. Like running is difficult enough to have to then have to do all this posturing or, as you know, Irving Goffman talks about the signaling process to other people. African-American women, on the other hand, had a very different process. So this is an example of how we see intersectionality come into play. So we have class, we have race, and then we have gender doing something different for these two groups. For African-American women, it was the exact opposite. For African-American women, they were more likely to engage in physical activity in white neighborhoods and they were less likely to engage in physical activity in black neighborhoods. And this has to do with the fact that in black neighborhoods, black neighborhoods are perceived as being less safe and at times actually are less safe. I should also note that in this particular study, all of the respondents actually report that their neighborhoods are relatively safe. So it wasn't really about safety. It was more about perception of safety, perception of public space. But part of what did happen is that African-American women were more likely to be in neighborhoods that have fewer spaces to engage in physical activity and in neighborhoods that have fewer facilities to engage in physical activity, what happens is that men tend to dominate these spaces. So black men were more likely to dominate parks, basketball courts, gyms, and oftentimes when women would enter these spaces, they were more likely to be gazed upon, as Bell Hooks talks about, right? They were more likely to be viewed as sexual objects instead of just coming in to engage in exercise. Now, this same process happens in white neighborhoods, too. It's not just like black men are just doing this, like white men are doing this, too. The difference is that in predominantly white neighborhoods, since they're so well resourced, they oftentimes have spaces that are only for women, whether that be a part of a gold's gym that's like a women only zone or a curves or a yoga studio or at times even boot camp um, centers. So you start to see spaces where women are able to dominate in predominantly white neighborhoods in ways that they don't happen in black neighborhoods. Now, there are two additional factors. The other factor has to do with um, African-American women relative to white women are more likely to be single parents. And so time comes into play. And when time comes into play, you all of a sudden simply have less time and less opportunities to actually engage in physical activity. And we, we, I'm sure we'll talk about the solutions, but one of the solutions that my research suggested is that if gyms actually have um, a space for, or a daycare space where parents can bring their children, like the place where I happen to to go to the gym at, all of a sudden this significantly increases the physical activity of single mothers. And then of course, this is primarily impacting African-American women. The final part of the story has to do with what uh, people think of themselves. So black women were the only group to, um, to buy into the narrative fully that that genes really determine what their bodies look like. So in other words, black women were more likely to buy into statements like I get it from my mama, I'm big boned, these sort of statements. And what these statements imply is that there really isn't nothing that you can do about what your body looks like. So then in that regard, why engage in physical activity if I'm not going to be able to change much about it. and this was this was pretty fascinating to me because because Afi- the conundrum is that African American women more than any other group actually understood the benefits of physical activity well beyond what people look like, because there are a ton of health benefits to physical activity. They have nothing to do with what your body looks like. That's just the one thing that people can see, right? But physical activity decreases. You know, your chances of diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. I mean, it increases your life expectancy. I mean, all these sort of things that we know that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, yet and still, what we see is that black women are more likely to buy into um, the term is called genetic determinism relative to locus self-control, which is locus self-control is more about you being able to control what you look like and what you do relative to some external force.
1: The, you know, as, as you're talking, I'm like. Just thinking about my own kind of lived experiences and how you know this research actually you know is enlightening in a lot of ways because I mean one there's there's been plenty of times where I've been in like you know white neighborhoods or white areas and and or just places in general I'm just like how come I never see any black folk outside running or <laughs> physical activity and you know like why is that you know and then and then I also think with my own experiences even because um, you know I went to Purdue as well so I was in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And I used to do a lot of running, you uh, know, trying to stay in shape. And I remember one particular time I was running in the evening um, and I was just running up the street, you know, have my running gear on, not bothering anybody. And the co- police officer literally, like, stopped uh, his car, he was in his patrol car and just, like, shown, like, put his lights on me, his police lights on me and, like, just kind of followed me for at least, like, 15 seconds I'm running. And then I guess he just realized that I was just working out and then continued along his way. But um it's those kind of experiences that make it, you know, because of uh being over policed or things that those longer being seen as different or standing out in these communities, we're just doing that. And I can see why people or black men in particular would be less likely to to do this kind of physical activity in these spaces.
2: Um, yeah so I I mean, real talk. Sure I mean, like, yeah, I mean real talk. I mean uh, you know this study um I mean it's been really compelling and, and enlightening for people because the story you just told is a story that that so many black men and at times even uh, Latino men and even at times black and Latino women tell regularly. Right. And oftentimes it becomes something that, that becomes acutely present among black men. This is the criminalization and the policing aspect. And part of how it impacts physical activity is that incident you just had, I'm pretty sure the next time you went on that run, because typically people go on similar routes, now all of a sudden you're Mm -hmm. thinking like, is is this same thing about to happen? Like is next time, is it gonna go farther? Next time, then the person just shining lights on me for running down the street, like like that's not normal for that Mm -hmm. type of stuff to happen when you're doing nothing wrong. And Mm -hmm. so part of that is part of the story, is about Mm -hmm. how policing and criminalization actually impacts our lives well beyond just some sort of police encounter, because the interesting thing about your particular story you just told, and studying policing, like I know this very well, yeah, that that interaction didn't show up on anything on the police side. Like, like yeah. it's it's not like there was a report. It's not like there was a warning given. So now mm-hmm. all of a sudden you go and try to say, hey, you know what I'm saying? I was running down the street. I felt like I got profiled, and they like, well, mm-hmm. we don't have a record of it. Well, yeah, because yeah. the person shining lights on me, and then they kept on going. But these mm-hmm. are the type of encounters we know that are so frequent. Among African-Americans, they really end up impacting our daily lives. And the thing about it, even though this work focuses specifically on physical activity, the fact that you're recalling this encounter from Purdue is part of the collective memory that then starts to impact our mental and physical health. So Mm -hmm. it extends beyond our physical health to manifest in ways that shape our mental and mental and emotional health, health as well
1: hmm. Yeah. My response to that situation was like, I'm not running in the dark anymore. There you go. <laughs> and was- there you
2: go. So see, right <laughs> in and there, think what you just said, right, it's proven a study like now you do, You just opted out of a time because evidently you were running at night because that was the time in which you could run. Right. Mm-hmm. It was not like you were just out running at night for no reason. Yeah. So you were running at night because that was the convenient time for you to run. Now, let a say you got to change your schedule around because of an incident that happened. And that starts to impact your overall health. And it starts to shape even when you leave uh, Purdue. It starts to shape your experiences in other places that you live. hmm
0: Mm hmm. Uh, I'm happy you shared that story, Ty. And it's, I never really thought about the role of place in shaping our behaviors related to physical activity. But I, I actually do. I feel like my personal experience also lend support to your research, because Uh, and I would say one of the reasons that I feel unsafe, like running like in, in the neighborhood I grew up in is my neighborhood doesn't have sidewalks, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like little small things that are probably mm-hmm. related to uh, like the, the economic um, uh, investment that the city does into particular neighborhoods and, and investments that they don't make in others. So. Um.
2: I mean, most definitely like, uh, so one of the things I did before I did the survey is I chose like five or six areas around the United States. So Uh, Area in Southern California, um, in Ontario, Northern California in the Bay Area, um, Cincinnati, Ohio, um, Denver, a place in in Colorado, uh, Prince George's County, Maryland, and uh, Brentwood, Tennessee. All right. And in all these different places, they had different levels of racial composition. That's why they were chosen. But one of the things that I noticed in Cincinnati, Ohio, in an area outside of Cincinnati called uh, Bedford, Ohio, it um, was uh, it was an interesting place because it, w- it was fairly affluent because like Procter and Gamble is there. You know, a lot of people make money. Procter and Gamble uh, is one of the companies that does a really good job of 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 equitable hiring. So they have a, a large representative number of minorities working for them. But I was staying at this hotel and I was trying to go to a local gym and literally there were no sidewalks. I had to walk up a hill. I had to go across a busy street. I mean, name it, and I was like, man, I was like, this is like kind of dangerous just trying to get over here. So you know what, if that was where, if, if that was the area where I live regularly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be exercising outside because there was like no way to like really like kind of get around and do the things you need to do. And so place becomes important. And as you just mentioned, oftentimes the lack of sidewalks and the lack of walkable spaces tend to be in um, in neighborhoods that have a larger percentage of minorities. Mm,
0: yeah, uh, this is all very fascinating, and I, I want to look into this more. I feel like, you know, speaking of your work and the policy implications, there are policy implications in this, and it, is, it has me fired up to go to city council and something like There's <laughs> <a>
2: sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, real talk. I mean, real talk. I mean, I think um, you know, like 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 the policy implications for place is so key. The policy implications for lack of investments is key. One of the things that I realized uh, traveling around doing this work is that um, the perception, you know, one of the narratives out there is that black people don't care about their health, their health right? Because this is part of the broader narrative that black people are lazy. And I didn't find that at all. In fact, what I found is black people searching for spaces to be comfortable to engage in physical activity. And then I found that the spaces where people were more likely to engage in physical activity, they oftentimes didn't look good parks you know gyms like there were some gyms that i went to around the country that had so many black people in it i wish i could take everybody and just show it to them just so people would be like wow i've never seen that many black people exercise before in my life and then Mm. the second thing they will recognize is that they would say this place looks like a dump Mm. yeah you think and and then the perception becomes that black people aren't taking care of the space but that's not actually what's going on and so um i actually did some ethnographic work at um at a gym, at kind of a, at a series of gyms that were, that had the same owner. What I found, and then I've done more recent work that mimics what I'm about to mention, is that what I found is that, um, the gym in the black neighborhood was actually making the most money, but because there were no other spaces that competed with it, the owner didn't invest in it because the owner was like, well, I mean, shoot, they got to come work out here. There's nowhere else for them to go. But Out in the suburbs in the predominantly white area, oh, there are several options. So, you know, I really got to make sure that this particular location is top notch to compete. So it created this cycle where all of a sudden you're like, wow, so the place is making. So even when we bring in the most money and that's one of the perceptions that I always tell people, I'm like, like when people like, oh, yeah, that place closed down in a black neighborhood because it wasn't making any money. Do you know it wasn't making any money or do you think it wasn't making any money? Those are two very different things. What you think might not be reality. Oh, and people mm-hmm. are like, oh, that area has a lot of crime. No, it doesn't. It has a lot of Black people. It doesn't have a lot of crime. Those mm-hmm. oh, are two very different things. But part of it that happens in our minds, and as a social psychologist, this is what I think about. Part of what happens in our mind is we make these correlations in our minds between Blackness and laziness, between Blackness and criminality, between Blackness and no-home training. And it leads to some of the some of the outcomes we see that have nothing to do with the people who are living there, trying to live their best lives.
0: Whew we need to get a, get a, Hey man, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I actually, I want to go back to like, you know, back to a discussion of gender, but particularly about mindsets, mm. um, and about some of the factors that, um, contribute to, uh, particularly black women's, uh, physical activity. And I saw a very interesting, uh, study, um, or research topic on your website that talked about thickness, body image, and physical health among black women. So you Mm -hmm. talked about kind of what, what it sounded like kind of like a growth versus fixed mindset in, in terms of like, Oh, you know, what I do won't make much of a difference because this is genetic, but I like to know more about like the role of like body image in shaping Uh, you know, black women's, you know, physical health, not both their outcomes, but also their decision to engage in like physical activity and et cetera.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, body image is huge. Right. And the way I approach it is similar to how public health scholars approach it, which is um, there are kind of some standard metrics used that ask people um, or show people a series of images. One, One of the scales is called the Stunkard scale. There are other scales that that show tend to show people a little bit more three-dimensional. But essentially, you know, these scales have been tested and, and, you know, validated with different types of groups of people, even though people have problems with them. But you look at these scales and you say that they show you, say, uh, eight images of bodies, say of women bodies, from very thin to very large. And they ask you, they say, on this scale from, say, one to nine, which image best represents you? Which image do you best think you look like? Okay. Based on that selection, they then take the CDC standards for how we think about obesity. So normal, you know, underweight, normal weight, overweight, obese, and then, you know, kind of obese one, two, and three, these are all different categories. And they match up the images to these, uh, to these obesity categories. And then what they do is, is we, we, we figure out one of the things I did was I wanted to know what percentage of people women in particular, are under or overestimating the size of their bodies, okay? So let's say, for example, on a scale from one to nine, say three on three and four on a scale are normal weight. But then when I look at a person's BMI, and we can have a conversation about BMI, but when we look at a person's BMI, their body mass index, um, which gives you a percentage or a, a metric that tells you how obese you might be and what your health risk might be, that we see that those people underestimate their body size. So they're actually obese, but they think they're normal weight, Okay, So they think they're obese, but they think they're normal weight. African-American women were more likely than white women to do that. And then based on that, actually impacts their ability to engage in physical activity. Now, part of this has to do with the fact that in African-American communities that um, a more voluptuous or, you know, as you said, as I, you know, as I call it and that's just used colloquially, a thicker frame. So, you know, potentially a larger hips, thighs and buttocks all of a sudden becomes more appealing in certain ways to certain people and in certain communities uh, relative to others. What this leads to at the end of the day is the fact that if people are more likely to underestimate their own body size, they're also less likely to engage in physical activity because they say, "Hey, I'm fine. Nothing's wrong with me. I don't necessarily have to engage in physical activity because my body is already looking looking like other people would find to be desirable." Okay,
1: um, you mentioned it really quickly, uh, the body mass index. Um, you know, can can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because even you know, with it with from my own experiences, I've known that there has been debate around um, the act. How accurate that is, or is that a measure we should be using to determine obesity or, or healthiness um, and all those kind of things? Could you just shed some light on that uh, for our listeners and for myself
2: as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the body mass index gets a lot of flack, uh, particularly more recently. And essentially, what the body mass index does is that it takes your height, your height and your weight, and it get it does a ratio, and it's it's another little part of the equation. You know, you like multiply by seven hundred three and squared or whatever, but it gives you a metric um, that tells you what your body mass index is. Based on your body mass index, the Centers for Disease Control then um, tells you what your health risks are. Are you at a higher risk of stroke? Are you at a higher risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease? Typically, once you hit obesity, particularly the higher range of obese one going into obese two is really when your health risks shoot through the roof. So. What that means is that if you are shorter and you have uh, a high amount of weight, then your body mass index is going to be higher, okay? Um, Or, you know, if you're taller and you have a substantial amount of weight, your body mass index is going to be higher. Now, the reason why people critique it is because first they say that it doesn't do a good job of taking into account muscle mass. That's true. Mm -hmm. We know muscle weighs more than fat, okay? But we also know, at the same time, that I mean that if your BMI is significantly higher, I mean you, you will have to have a considerable high high amount of muscle mass and a very low percentage of body fat in order to make that make sense. The way I think about it instead is that does your BMI correspond to your body fat? Body fat, I think, is a better measure. And typically mm-hmm. get calipers, you can go to the gym. Anyone can go to a gym, any gym. Um, they, they typically might do it at your doctor's office. They can measure your body fat percentage. They'll take calipers. They'll put them on your stomach. They'll put them um, probably on your arm, on the side of your chest, um, and on your thigh, and they will give you your body fat percentage. For most people, including African-Americans, your body fat will correspond to your BMI. Now, again, there is a small percentage of people whose BMI will be very high, even though they're in good shape. A lot of these people tend to be athletes and bodybuilders. For most of us, that's not the lifestyle we engage in it. So the, the reason why people tend to critique as well the BMI is because uh, then people get into all sort of things about, you know, bone density and and again, the, the, the muscle relative to fat. But the key question I always ask people when they critique uh, BMI is I say, OK, um, how often do you exercise? You know, b- because based on that, if they're not exercising a lot, you can pretty much be be pretty clear that the BMI is pretty accurate. And and again, the thing about the BMI that I want to stress for people listening in is that if your BMI shows that you're in the obese range, does that mean you're unhealthy? No, it doesn't mean you're unhealthy. What it does mean, though, is that you're at a higher risk of certain types of health conditions. And we know that African-Americans tend to be at a higher risk. And so part of engaging in physical activity is decreasing those risks. And if you're not engaging in physical activity, then it's probably a higher likelihood that your BMI is capturing fat and not muscle. And, you know, if you're kind of like I was when I, you know, got to grad school and dealt with a whole bunch of health issues because I was living in Indiana, all the things you talked about that, you know, very well, Um, That when I when I had to to reckon with myself, like wow, that's my BMI. That's uh, that's not true. You know, that's your first reaction. That's not true. The scale is lying. You're lying, doctor. I don't trust you, right? Um, and of course, there are various reasons not to trust them anyway. But um, but at the same time, then we have to kind of have a, a, a self-reflective reckoning to talk about what's going on. But what I advise people to do: look, if you don't trust the BMI, which you can easily calculate by your height and your weight, you can enter it in online. There are online platforms. Go to a gym, do the calipers. If you're still not convinced by that. You can then uh, do more advanced testing, like underwater weighing. I think that's really cool. You like get in, like, like you know, like you like you get on a scale and you go in the water, and it literally takes the buoyancy of your bones and your muscles and all that, and kind of detach that from your fat, and then you get a more accurate reading of what your fat percentage is. And you know, again, and most people are like me, I mean, they're gonna have a rude awakening and actually feel some kind of way about themselves after doing that. But um, but I also think that it's a it's a great kind of lesson to
1: lesson to use. Mm-hmm. no, I appreciate that. Um, I think that helps me and a lot of my listeners with that uh the whole B in my conversation. Um, really quickly, this this is a little bit off topic, uh, this next question, but I have to ask you because of my own personal inter- interest with criminal justice related things and I know some of your work has highlighted that dealing with policing especially uh, black bodies and black communities and things along the lines of hoodies and stuff along those lines. I know one particular suggestion and policy recommendation that has going around, we're talking about criminal justice reform and trying to better police citizen relationships has been the aspect and the instruments of body, body body-worn cameras. Um, And I feel that, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether or not they're going to be effective, but I know one article you recently wrote looked at kind of the racial differences and perceptions on the use of uh, police wearing body cameras. So you just talk about that um, a little bit, um, because I think that's just important for a lot of reasons, because it is a major topic of policy conversation, but also to highlight the differences with the racial perceptions.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, so when it comes to to policing, I think one stat that people have to really, really take to heart is that African-Americans are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by the police when they're not attacking, nor when they have a gun. How do we know that? Police officers tell us. These data come from, uh, from the 16 states that we have pretty you know, decent data from um, across the United States, where police officers are asked, the person you shot and killed, did they have a weapon, yes or no? Were they attacking you, yes or no? African-Americans represent nearly 40% of that group. One response to that, people always say, oh, well, you're talking about such a small percentage. Well, look, not really, because, I mean, those are people who are killed. We're not talking about the people who are shot. We know how many people get the flu every year. We don't know how many people are shot by the police. Like, that that blows my mind, that we that we can track how many people get the flu, but we can't track how many people get shot by the police. And if we're talking about shooting, then we can back it up even more. If we know that's the number of people who were shot, then we know that there's a percentage of people who were accosted, who were physically uh, what they perceive to be physically abused, or uh, or the police feel was justified, and then we go back even farther. We have people who are follow like the story that you told us earlier. So it's part of a long continuum, and all of this impacts health because even if people aren't uh, victimized to the extent where they face uh, death or shooting um, at the hands of a police officer's gun, they still experience a slow death in the sense that their their worry. And the fact that they are profiled on a regular basis actually impacts their health outcomes. And then this all comes back full circle to impact people's physical activity in particular. Um, And it becomes acute among middle class African-Americans because middle class African-Americans are the ones who are more likely to be in predominantly white spaces, are more likely to be the token, are more likely to be the only one. And we start to see these particular outcomes. I think what body cams do, is um, you know, I actually think they they visualize people's experiences sim- similar to uh, to smartphones. I think they're extremely useful. I think what we have to realize about the stage we're in right now in this movement for black lives is we are still in the data collection phase. The data collection phase takes a long time. We have to we have to get comprehensive data in order to be able to analyze and show the patterns of so the data we have, I mean, the the patterns are overwhelming, but we still need more information. And so by being able to document what's going on, by being able to, for people to be able to visualize what's going on, either through body cams or smartphones, we start to see these outcomes. Now, does research show that body cams matter in terms of changing police officers' behavior? Mm, not that much. I mean, it's, it's some, and it depends. I mean, they're kind of like, uh, like like cameras in the police cruises. You know, after Rodney King in the 90s, all of a sudden they put cameras in police cars. We've seen a dip uh, in, in police brutality claims. Um, but then all of a sudden they got used to the cameras and things changed around. There were also other policy changes related to stand your ground and stopping frisk and use of force that also I think kind of overruled the the um, the cameras in the cars. But I think body worn cameras are useful for that fact. I, I don't think what people should should think is that all of a sudden that people are being filmed um, and that this is going to change their behavior. Why? Because as that article you were talking about highlighted, um, which I think the title of that was um, was can cameras stop the killings is that police officers also think the cameras benefit them. Right? So police officers are like, "Oh yeah, these cameras are going to show the way that I'm treated. They're going to show all the crap that I go through." And you know what? In some cases they do. So, I mean, part of what I think the cameras highlight is a more realistic experience of police officers and civilians when they're when they're interacting with each other. And gives jurors oftentimes an insight into what's going on. But the thing is, these cameras still don't change unless they're very egregious cases, like uh, like like with the case of Walter Scott in South Carolina, um, and that was actually shot with a with a with a smartphone and not necessarily a body worn camera. But unless it's that egregious jurors have a very jurors have a lot of difficulty in convicting police officers. Like they just, they just don't like to do it. They just can't do it. Like even when they find them liable, they think that them losing their jobs is, uh, is big enough, not necessarily anything else. So, um, so, you know, I think body, I think body-worn cameras matter. I think they're good. Um, I think it's also some, some devils in the details as well about whether or not officers get to leave them on or cut them off or whether or not they get to, um, you know, whether or not they're on continuously and if they're on continuously, what does that mean if police officers are going into churches or they're going into someone's home and someone doesn't have on enough clothes or they're going into the hospital? I mean, you know, these are real concerns that that the police officers who I work with who are, you know, who are really about uh, building up um, relationships between police officers and civilians. These are the things they're really concerned about, um, you know, and I think they're valid claims. And so, you know, I don't want people to disregard body worn cameras, but I want people to realize that this is part of a, a longer part of the movement, that if we think about MLK's um, nonviolent campaign, the first step is, is, is a collection of facts. And that's what we are. You know, we're like in the 1940s with Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgo Marshall riding around the South recording separate and unequal schools. Like, we kind of have to realize where we are in the movement. And I think people want to fast forward, but we got to collect the data and we have to push our our state and federal legislators to collect this information so that we can better actually examine it as researchers. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I completely um, agree. Have you guys actually seen that A and E television show called uh, PD Cam or Body Cam?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but I can imagine that mm-hmm. it it shows a lot from the police perspective in terms of like what what they potentially, um, encounter, uh, from their perspective.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, what I encourage people to do, and this, these are some of the things we, that we're aiming to do with virtual reality. But one of the things I encourage people to do is, uh, well, first off, let, let me say this. So I, I did, um, one of the things that we do at my, at the lab for applied social science research is we do, um, public forums and we work with, you know, nonprofits and you know, government entities and businesses, and we work with police departments a lot, and we do uh, police civilian um, forms. And we do these forms at high schools, and we did one recently at one of the largest high schools in the state of Maryland, and um, in in Prince George's County, and it was about 120 students, 120 graduating seniors. And I asked them at the end, how many of them was this their first time having a real conversation with a police officer? That wasn't on the street or wasn't when they're somewhere and somebody called the police on them. There were over a third of the students that raised their hand. So people simply are not having conversations with one another. And so, what I encourage people to do is go on a ride along. Like police officers oftentimes welcome it. Just sign up at your local precinct, at your local uh, police station, go on a ride along with them. Go during the day, go during it, go at night and just see what they experience. It's not about you agreeing with everything they do because you won't. Partly you won't agree because you haven't been trained like them, you don't know why they're making the decisions they're making. But you can ask questions. And the objective is to aim to understand. The same way it's important for, for police officers to realize what is it like to be black and male or just black or Latino and see a police officer shine the light on them when they're not doing anything wrong or rush up on them for no reason when they stand on the street. Like part of it is helping people to understand what it's like to kind of walk in other people's shoes and see things from their perspective. And I think that goes a really, really long way toward us understanding. It doesn't mean we have to agree. Like there are tons of things I see that I don't agree with, but I understand. And then I say, how can we change it? Oftentimes it's by the policy. It's not about the police officers, because if you put any police officer in those situations, white, black, or what have you, they're gonna probably perform the same way. That lets me know it's not about the person, it's about the policy. If we actually wanna change some of the outcomes we see, we have to change the policies. And that means we have to understand the decisions they're making in order to justify why we actually need to change the policy.
0: I I completely agree. Mm -hmm. Um, So you've, I, I feel like you did a very good job of like, discussing the policy implications and what we need to to do moving forward um you know in in thinking about all of your research uh these particular topics that we've covered is there anything we
2: didn't ask that you feel like is is important for our listeners to hear you know i I feel like we addressed a lot i mean the one thing i'll say i think that i skipped over was um what are some of the policy solutions with physical activity i think that um what, what my research has found is is that there, there are a few ways we can combat it. I talked about one which is uh, putting uh, putting daycare centers in gyms and community centers. so the this money can come from you know state or local block grants so you know oftentimes you have uh, local governments, state governments, federal governments who give block grants to kind of improve some of the services um, of local communities. This becomes a way to do it, right It's to kind of supplement these businesses or give them a tax incentive. Um, to put daycares in the places where people are trying to engage in physical activity. i seen this at one of the gyms, and I was looking around at this gym, and I was like, why are all these women in here? I was like, it's a whole bunch of weight in here. I was like, you know, not saying women don't lift weights like this, because they do, but it didn't seem to be the type of space that was as welcoming to women. And then they said, oh, yeah, we got a daycare. So all the women come in after work, after they get off work, and they come in here with their kids. And I was like, okay, don't you think maybe you all should at least put some more types of uh, more types of equipment in here that might be more appealing to a large group of people? Right. And I I could go into detail about that particular conversation, which is crazy. But but that's one way. The other way I found um, is that give resources to places that people trust and where people are comfortable. Churches, hair salons, barbershops why because these were some of the first black owned businesses no matter where you go no matter if you in no matter if you're in Bloomington or no matter if you if you up if you up in in West Lafayette you can find somebody to cut your hair it might not be the best haircut you've had might not be the best <laughs> hairstyle you've had but you can find it and that's typically where African Americans find people that's typically where Latinos find people and these spaces become places where people organize activities out of they're not just going to church they're not just getting their hair done they're actually interacting with one another in a communal space. So I found that these spaces can get resources. Um, These organizations, these businesses can get resources to actually increase physical activity by having a walking group, by having um, an exercise class a few times a week to get the members to come out. Right. So these are the types of things that matter. The final thing is um, what doctors say matter. So I found that despite what I said about African-American women and them buying into genetic determinism or even um, underestimating their body size. When physicians tell them to engage in physical activity, black women, particularly overweight black women is the group most likely to be receptive to that. Mm -hmm. The problem is that they are also the least group to be told. Part of this is because physicians fear that, that the patient might not like what they say. They also fear that they might be accused of something. And you know, physicians need to get over that. Instead, we need to develop a script similar to what was developed for smoking, where all of a sudden, this is a script that physicians give to patients if they are obese. Now we can make them culturally sensitive if we want them to be, whatever we think that that should be. But at the same time, these messages have to be given to patients and they work.
1: Mm -hmm. no i appreciate that um it's always good when you have these kind of conversations and then we always leave with like tangible solutions and things that can be done and people can work towards after hearing this conversation and listening to this episode on the podcast so that we can move to have better health health outcomes and all the above uh, within our community and beyond um aside aside from that um you know we appreciate you coming time to take the time to come talk to us, Dr. Ray, uh, where can, uh, people learn more about your work or, or find you on social media, websites, et cetera.
2: Yeah, sure. So on social media, I'm, um, at sociologist Ray on everything. So it's just sociologist Ray on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Uh, my website is just rayshawnray.com, R A S H dot com, But, you know, follow me on social media. Uh, You know, I post stuff related to these particular topics. And part of what I'm aiming to do is, as you're saying, is just kind of spread and disseminate information and knowledge that we tend to hoard in the academy. And then also think of how we can come together to form solutions to what I think are some of the biggest barriers and pillars that the United States has, which is racial and gender inequality.
0: Thank you so much. We'll definitely post links to uh, your website, your social media handles, everything, because we want to get this out here. We, okay. You know, it's about to be New Year, New Us. So come on
1: <laughs> I heard that.
0: <laughs> All right.
1: Appreciate it. Yo, yo, dad, so what you think about Dr. Ray and his research and the conversation?
0: I thought it was a fabulous conversation, especially kind of, you know, to start off the the new year, new year, new us, trying to figure out these health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, I particularly, I was... I thought it was good that he kind of talked about, you know, the the weaknesses of BMI, but also like how it can be a useful tool to think about uh, predicted health outcomes based on these numbers. You know, mm-hmm. I think we're really quick to kind of dismiss BMI. Like he said, like, oh, you know, black people, they're made of more muscle. Like, you know, not taking our muscle into account. But like he said, baby. If you haven't been exercising, <laughs> that's probably not muscle. <laughs>
1: yes, y'all. Let's keep it real with ourselves. All right? We, we can't be out here lying to ourselves, you know, thinking everybody just naturally gifted with right. these genetic muscles. If you ain't been in the gym, put in that work. More really? often than not, it's probably an accurate measure you're
2: probably
0: and what's crazy so he talked about the different ways to like measure body fat which I do think is uh useful so I had joined this really fancy gym uh that actually had like this body pod thing to where like you kind of like strip down like you even have to put on like this little swim cap because they're trying to like just reduce any type of like outside noise and so you sit in this pod and it like measures your measures your body fat and chow my body fat and I'm I looked decent, like I, you mm-hmm. know, like I looked in the mirror and I looked good, but my body fat was like over thirty percent. Oh man! And I had no idea, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, cause I looked, I looked solid,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but I was like, yo, I've been kidding myself.
1: <laughs> That's how it be sometimes. We don't want, we don't, wanna know. We're trying to stay away don't want to know. from the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, how that would be um, getting those kind of numbers. Yeah, I can see why people will stay away from it. Um, but now I, I like, I like, this was a pretty cool conversation. Um, I got a lot from it. Like, just even just having conversation, the part of the conversation and discussion just about place and class and things you just kind of take for granted. You know, like, oh, yeah, people who are in affluent areas of middle class are going to be more healthy or going to do more physical activity. But when you look at the, from an intersectional approach that that might not be the case. Um, and how even the differences between black men and black women who is more likely to benefit in those spaces. And mm-hmm. like you said, I thought I, you know, something I never even thought about how black women were more likely because of just more resources, like, uh, even just, you know, having either daycares or having extra things, you know, that can accommodate or just spaces with just all women. Um, I was like, that, that's true. And then even just being a black male, I'm like, yeah, I can see now, you know, why a lot of black males may not be running outside or, or, or doing a lot of outdoor activities because you do stick out like a sore thumb. You know, you are being looked at as a troublemaker, being criminalized and, and a threat. Um, so it does decrease the odds of you kind of taking or being part of these spaces because of all those other extraneous things that we, you know, go unseen to, to most other folk.
0: Mhm. So you know, I I mentioned like sidewalks, but another thing that I want to mention about black neighborhoods because I my my mom lives in a predominantly black neighborhood. You know, is I don't know dogs. Yo, Thank everybody you. around, they be having like pit bulls and stuff. I am not about to be running around these neighborhoods and get chased by a dog on pit bull. Like that's a real concern for me.
1: Yeah, And I like
0: like, for instance, there was a time where I was literally running miles a day every single day. And when I'm home at my mom's house, I don't do that because I don't have anywhere to run where I feel like I'm not going to be chased by a dog if I don't have a big old stick
1: with me. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's true, too. <laughs> that's a real threat. man. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You know what I'm saying? I used to um, live in Jersey City when I was a kid and it was common just loose dogs on the block. I don't know whose dogs they were, but they'd be around. So yeah, trying to run in them spaces. Um, especially, you know, you don't know what could happen with a dog man chasing you. That's what they just naturally do. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I got not, four legs. We only got two. I so. am
0: not with the shits. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, get your dog whisper on, man. trying to, try to call
0: yeah. my um, But yeah, I I thought it was all, you know, really interesting in how uh the other thing is kind of like the locus of control where we think control lies in regard to how our bodies look um i think that's really important for me i try to have conversations so i always I always tell like some of my friends or maybe even john i'll say like you know no matter how much i exercise my body will never look like this and you know some of that is true like you cannot have uh, like we all have body types Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just have a body type where I'm. My stomach is, you know, it'll. I can get it to where it'll look nice, but I can't fool myself into thinking that I'm ever gonna have like a body where I got a badonkadonk and a tiny weight. That's just not <laughs> how I'm built.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: What? Because I said, but dog, dog.
1: Well, no, I'm just thinking about uh, conversations that I've even had, you know, with people and even Kristen about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Just like, like these Instagram models and people that get all this work done.
0: Yes, know. yes. So I do think it's about being realistic. Like, I can look very good, I might not look like people who have had surgery to have their bodies altered. Mm-hmm. And Knowing the difference between what is my optimal body versus, you know, was this unattainable thing that we see in the media and on Instagram. I think people have to, you know, just get get a reality check. No, you're not going to look like an Instagram model, but that doesn't mean you can't look like a better you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think they give these like it makes these false. uh goals that can't really happen um, with a lot of women. You know, it's like, it's natural that like, if if you lose weight, you're gonna lose weight everywhere. You can't really control like,
0: <laughs> where you're gonna lose
1: weight. <laughs> and so, so it'll be like, yeah, you try to get these tight, tight tummies and then everywhere else, you know, your hips, everything else start to slim down as well. Then it's like, oh, what's going on? I think also in the black community too, I think, you know, most of the time, I can't speak for everyone, but I think there is, you know, there is this with women just uh, for men and women, but like, you know, taking i guess pride in being thick or whatever right mm-hmm. that being an, an attractive thing. so it's like i think that can also play a role cuz i've heard people say like oh, i don't want to go to the gym too much cuz i'm not trying to you know lose this or lose that you yeah. know <laughs> like, cuz they want to keep that shape because you know it's attractive a sign of whatever um, a beauty within our community but i think you know it also goes into the playing like how people how much physical activity people are willing to do you know they want to keep that shape which yeah. is funny
0: you know what I looked my absolute best in terms of like body composition and like my figure when I was not just running but lifting weights Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so you know ladies don't be afraid of the weight that's how we can keep some of you know the thighs and the booty you can keep some of that if you will to like Put a little weight on those uh those bars.
1: That was always like the number one thing. Even when I was at Purdue, and I you know I talked to talked to women, try to get them to come lift, and they just would not want to lift because they feel like they would get super muscular and and looking like a man. I'm like, yo, first of all, you don't have enough testosterone for that to happen. You know, <laughs> that's not gonna be the case. And you know how much lifting you would actually have to do to like bulk up that much, uh, like these bodybuilder women and stuff. It's like. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, that's not gonna happen you're gonna tighten up a little bit you'll be okay yeah
0: but yeah it's
1: funny man
0: it's and funny. i just gotta say audience ty used to be a drill sergeant he used to work <laughs> our nerves about going to the gym he used to hate on my little richard simmons home DVD. <laughs> like that's not real exercise like oh my god he's the, I could the <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, man. That's so funny when I think about it. Yeah, I used to be on everybody, man. Like, get in the gym. You know, ain't, ain't not, it ain't real working out if you're not
0: That's, in the gym. that's not no real workout. I will say it is. It is. I, still, <laughs> <laughs> But I do. It is nice to get in the gym, though. But, man, yeah. I used to work our nerves.
1: No <laughs> I, I did. I did. I can't lie. I cannot lie. I just want everybody healthy. I want my people healthy. That's all.
0: Yes. And hopefully this conversation, you know, kind of contributed to like people rethinking, you know, what it means to be healthy, what it means to define good health goals. Um, Mm -hmm. And also just being conscious of what's keeping them from physical activity and, and being healthy.
1: Yes, yes. It's 2019, y'all. Now let's start off this year right. All work together, get those bodies right. You no, know, no hypertension, no diabetes, you know, no obesity. Diabetes. <laughs> diabetes.
0: <laughs> we need to have a uh, PhD, uh body challenge or something like that.
1: Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe we'll think about that, you know, see, see get get something popping for that have a little PhD challenge That'd fit a, club fit club <laughs> yeah we got we got a lot of a lot of homies that that are still working out and doing body competitions and all that stuff now body oh body yeah eric yes. Who yeah. <laughs> was all here before <laughs> yes, yeah yes, uh uh-huh, yes. uh-huh. um he's doing all these physique competitions and so and motivating others i'm like all right man <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, no, appreciate As always, appreciate our guests. appreciate Dr. Ray coming on to come chat with us about his research. Really compelling, really good stuff. Um, uh, you know, we just I, just things about health and all that stuff. I think it's just really important conversations to be had within our community and likewise elsewhere. Uh, but other than that, you know, continue to follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at BHD Podcast. Email us with your ideas. Or if you want to be a guest on a podcast at BHDPodcast at gmail.com, visit our website, www blackandhighlydangerous.com to keep up with our latest content and all the good stuff. Um, Continue to rate and review us on iTunes. All of that really helps us and promotes us and gets our name out there. Share us. um, Share us with your friends. Share us with your family. Share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.
0: If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhighlydangerous.com, to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums.
1: Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHDPodcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.